Hey guys, how are we getting on? Welcome back to the JCC podcast for episode number 31. I hope you're all having a fantastic day so far. This is a really, really good in-depth analysis of stress and, and anxiety management. It's a really, really interesting conversation. So hopefully you guys uh, appreciate it. Hopefully you guys take some value from it and enjoy it. So sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. Hey guys, how are we getting on? Welcome back to the JCC podcast for episode number 31. And today we are with Joe O'Brien, health psychologist, and we are going to run through the topic of how to manage stress and anxiety. How are you today, Joe? I'm doing really well. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you. Glad to have you on the podcast and really, really looking forward to delving into this conversation. I know it's definitely, uh, um, as we were just talking on before off air, even, excuse me, definitely a kind of a, a gap that needs to be bridged between the psychology side and the physique side. I think that um, as we were just talking there, you and myself both have similar kind of interest in this. And I think that trying to blend the two and giving the listeners a good idea of how we can actually manage stress what is stress how can we manage it and the same with anxiety because i know it definitely creeps up in the composition and physique world for sure so um to start the ball or to start everything off even excuse me love to get a little bit about uh, about you what you do and, and who are the type of people that you're working with at the moment so yeah like i said i'm a trainee health psychologist so i'm hopefully six months away from from graduating in in my doctorate. My doctorate is in health psychology, so a lot of people probably haven't heard of that. That's kind of the crossover between our physical health and our mental health, how our individual psychology impacts our health, our health behaviors, and vice versa, how health behaviors also promote um, mental health and all of those different parts. The area that I actually focus on specifically is, is behavior change. So the psychology that underpins behavior change a lot of the time and um, from you know the research that we have in this area it's often not that much about the approach that we use so you know people often have these arguments about what the kind of perfect macro split is and what the perfect diet is or what's the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it the thing that actually predicts change um i guess better than some of those things is actually people's individual um psychological profile i guess their own kind of emotional well-being their own kind of um, thinking styles and all of these different psychological factors. So that's where my research is at the moment in terms of my doctorate work. Um, yeah. The research that I'm doing right now is on how psychological factors can predict weight loss. So we know that a lot of people who go forward with weight loss also have um, struggles with the psychological side of things. That doesn't mean they necessarily have a diagnosable mental health disorder, but it might mean that someone has trouble you know, managing emotions or stress levels. It might mean that someone has body image concerns or is at risk maybe of developing some of those issues. So what I would like, I guess, from that research is to be able to um, screen people appropriately and see, you know, can we predict, it, are you going to be successful or not? Or is there a different type of support that might be better in terms of um, you know, what us as health professionals can do for our clients? So rather than throwing everyone down the same um, traditional weight loss intervention, like what can we actually do to better this service? And can we look at more things? So that's actually what I would work with in practice. I work one-to-one with people. I do group work. And um, I was also mentioning to you beforehand that I actually do health professionals training. So people like you know yourself, personal trainers, coaches, also nutritionists and dietitians, and um, a bit of training about the psychology of behavior change. So I think that fairly covers um, uh, my background. And in terms of we were actually, myself and Joe were just talking about this before we, we jumped on. Your research sounds really, really interesting. And I've definitely been following, I've been following more so the, the workload that you have to, to transcribe all the stuff over the last couple of weeks and months. 
Um, but it'd be really, really interesting to see that that come out now. And in terms of, I know we were just touching on it there, have you found that there is some sort of kind of characteristics between success, people who are, are kind of geared up for success and people who are more so geared up towards failure? Have you seen any characteristics so far or have you seen that in the past anecdotally or, or through the research so far? So in terms of my own research, we haven't done the follow-up yet. What I have done is collected a lot of data on the people who present to weight loss or the people who are actively pursuing weight loss. And from the initial stuff that I've done in my own research, there's a lot of people out there who are pursuing weight loss that would likely benefit from um, psychological support. And that doesn't mean, again, that they have this diagnosable mental health condition. It just means that some of the presentations in terms of people's thinking styles or people's emotional well-being, people's risk of disordered eating, all of those things could use support from a psychological perspective that probably won't be helped by dieting or strictly weight loss. So that's what I see in my own research. In terms of what I've read about, because obviously to, to do this research, you have to have a kind of comprehensive or at least a decent view of what the previous research says. We know that one of the things that predicts change is being able to look after your emotional well-being and your kind of psychological needs. We know that thinking styles has a big impact. So perfectionism is one that I know I mentioned to you before. Um, people's kind of level of perfectionism can sometimes predict um, short-term success, I would say, but also can get in the way in the long term. Kind of all or nothing or black and white thinking is a really kind of common one. I'm sure people who are listening to this have had those days when they you know hit a bump in the road or slip up and they just their response to that is wanting to give up so it's this very i'm either on plan or i'm off plan i'm either yeah. doing the program or not doing the program mm -hmm. so those kind of thinking styles and thinking patterns can be predictive of someone's ability to lose weight what we know from the people who are successful is that they're quite flexible in in those approaches so it's not black or white it's there's a gray area there um okay. people view it as a kind of long-term um a long-term change like a lifestyle change the way I put it is people who view it as this is the way I am now versus um, people who think I'm just doing this until I hit the goal and then I can stop or then I can go back to normal. Mm. The people who view it as wanting to kind of change the way they are um, generally kind of um, succeed in, in the longer term. Yeah, like that, they look like kind of a eight to 12 week diet. Someone's all in for that eight to 12 weeks and then they fall off the bandwagon and blow up over the next couple of months and, and whatever. And we see that, that maybe like, um, uh, what would it even be may to may to july diet down and then just completely go off the, the wagon over the year and, and we talk about this as a like i said like it's a lifestyle change every transformation that anyone makes has to be from a lifestyle perspective first and foremost or else never like you said that longevity is never going to work um i think from a, a long-term perspective there you talked about um some psychological help and support uh with with these kind of phases what kind of things would those be? Would that be meeting with someone? Would it be some of these kind of online platforms like Headspace and stuff? Or what would you kind of deem to be psychological support? It really depends on the individual and what their needs are. So yeah. if I was taking the group that I have in my research and I can see certain variables like people at risk of eating disorders or disordered eating, people who have severe kind of body image concerns, I'd be recommending kind of one-to-one -one with someone like myself with a psychology background. Um, and again, like there's a huge stigma there because people don't necessarily equate the two, right? It seems like weight loss. And I'm like, oh, I can't, you know, people are saying to themselves, I'm not good at losing weight or I can never stick to it. And often it's the psychological barriers that get in the way. Yet when people think, you know, they want to lose weight, they would never think 
let's go to a psychologist, let's go to a mental health professional. And yet a lot of the things that people struggle with, I'm sure you see it in your own practice, things like motivation, things like emotions and stress, they're the things that can trip people up a lot of the time. And the way I think about it is, if that's the thing that's kind of that you're struggling with, if that's the thing that is tripping you up, then that's the thing that needs to be addressed. And if it's emotions and stress, like who better than a mental health professional, I would say. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, you said that it's sometimes it's the, the kind of, like you said, stress or emotion or something like that. It's, it's pretty much 99% of the time, you know, people all know how to stay on plan, but what is it that takes them off plan? And like you said, it's that additional stress load. It's the, it's the kids, it's the trying to fit all this kind of stuff into their work life and having the stress on top of work. And then probably not being able, not being in tune with how to, to manage all this, this kind of stress. And once it gets too much, what do we do? It's emotional eating. It's that kind of thing. And just throws us off plan or it's too much for me to handle. I'm too tired because my sleep is so poor because my stress is so bad. And therefore I can't make it into the gym and all reverse back. And I always say this to clients all the time at the very top of, of all our check-ins. I've probably said this a couple of times on podcasts. I have one biofeedback marker for everything, but all at the top is going to be sleep and has three biofeedback markers for that as well. So it will always revert back to kind of sleep, stress, mood, energy, all that kind of stuff. And from a mindset perspective, I feel that it's always the, the first hurdle that people fall down at. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, again, what we see, like I've done two parts of my own research, which is, quantitative stuff which is very much like analyzing data but the other side of that is qualitative where we actually interview some of the people who are taking part and anyone who has spoke to me so far in these interviews um you know i have 20 hours worth of interviews with with people um out of those 20 hours that i've, I've spoken to people who are struggling with this it's such a common theme like yeah. the reason why i've struggled with this is you know stress anxiety body image concerns yeah. lifestyle factors and i always talk about um eating as like it doesn't happen in isolation eating isn't like independent of life we all have situations that can change how we eat can change how we exercise can change how we sleep and if those factors kind of stem from the psychological stuff i think that that's the really important bit that we're missing it's the bit that is never i guess has never been traditionally included in weight loss interventions right. think about the you know the weight watchers and the slimming world and all of the different programs that are out there there are never psychological um there are never kind of psychologists who input into the development of those things yeah. and similarly now like there is a big I guess a shift in seeing that these things can impact it. Yet there's not as much psych psychology input as I think is is necessary. Yeah, I think that there definitely has been, like you said, there is starting to get a little bit more shift. But trying to blend those two kind of together, I think it is really, really, really important going forward for for everyone. And in terms of so kind of defining these terms now. We, to give a good good definition, what is stress? What is anxiety? Because I think that a lot of people go, I, I get this a lot from clients or I hear this a lot, like I'm, I have so much stress, like I have a bit of anxiety about this kind of stuff, but people don't really know what, what, what it is. So what's actually going on internally when these kind of things do increase on a day-to-day -day life? So I think the first thing to remember is that both of those responses are entirely normal and functional. Really. they serve a very important purpose and um, people often demonize them like i shouldn't ever feel stressed i shouldn't feel anxious if i feel anxious it's a bad thing if i feel stressed it's a bad thing um so in terms of the physiological response like i said it's it's functional so a couple of thousand years ago the example that is always used is this caveman example 
if um, and they call it, they call the stress response the fight or flight response. Yeah. So if a caveman back in the day um, perceived some sort of threat or danger, thought that there was going to be something harmful coming up, they would enter into this fight or flight response where your heart rate increases, your adrenaline increases, your cortisol increases. And that was to serve a function, right? If there was a threat there, it might have been, I don't know, a wild animal or something like that. If that was the threat, then you know that physical response enabled someone to either fight off the wild animal or the threat or run away from it. So that's where the response comes from. It's a detection of something bad going to happen. However, right now in, in the lives that we kind of live, you know, you can't run away from uh, you know, work, you know, you can't run away from or fight, you know, the colleague that you don't get along with or whatever causes the stress. Yeah. So the stress response is a, is a kind of response to a detection of something bad happening or, you know, something that you perceive as a threat or danger. It's really interesting in my work where it comes up a lot is, you know, weight gain, a fear about weight gain, a fear about a fear of certain types of foods or, you know, avoiding of, of certain foods. And again, it's this idea that in our heads, maybe we've been surrounded by messages for a long period of time that certain foods are bad or that weight gain is really bad and the weight loss is really great. And that's what everybody should be kind of pursuing. So I think, again, they're not necessarily threatening, right? Like a carbohydrate isn't threatening, but people get anxious about eating a lot of carbohydrates because we've assigned a meaning to it. We've assigned that like certain foods are threatening or bad. Um, and that brings up the stress response or the anxiety response. Similar, it can be things like, you know, work. It can be things like life stressors, like kids or, you know, relationship difficulties or whatever that might look like for, for people. But I think to remember, first of all, that, that is a normal response. When I would say it's it's maybe a little bit excessive or it's kind of something to work on would be when it starts impacting your life. So if anxiety or stress is too much, you might you know start avoiding um kind of I guess the three things we look for in psychology are um a change in behavior, significant changes in behavior. If so, if it's impairing someone's ability to function so what i mean by that is if they're withdrawing from their social circles if they're not engaging in their job that well if they're not able to you know sleep or not able to train or it's having an impact on their lives and the third one is if it's causing some sort of internal distress significant distress that's kind of different to kind of typical day-to-day so that would be how i differentiate it there's one that is kind of impactful to your life and how you feel and all of those different bits and there's another that's actually quite functional and that helps us do certain things yeah. And in terms of that kind of, I know you talked about like physical um, stress from like running away from that line, like we talked about, um, and psychological, emotional, that kind of thing. Is there a different um, sympathetic response that happens with all of those different variables or is, is stress the same? The body kind of reacts to it exactly the same. So, yeah, in terms of like whether there's a real a real inverted commas, um, whether there's a real stressor or not, like a very physical one, or it's in your head, for example, it's something that you're just worried about, the body and the brain kind of respond in in similar ways. So the source of the threat, um, kind of, not that it's irrelevant, but the the source of the threat, the response in the body and the brain is pretty similar, whether that is kind of something that you're drumming up in your head. Like, for example, if I was coming onto this podcast and I was worried about, you know, what's he going to ask me? What's he going to say? And yeah. they're kind of 
brought up like you know they're crumbed up in my head basically or, or things that i think about versus you know you step out onto the road and there's a speeding car coming and you know that's a very real threat regardless of what the source is okay. um, the response is pretty similar okay interesting and in terms of of managing combating anxiety first and foremost i think you made a really really good point that stress and anxiety is is so normal and it's a a very normal thing to happen but when we don't understand maybe how to manage it or when we don't understand or when we're not aware of it or able to deal with it, i feel that it can kind of have that overwhelming sensation or feeling that a lot of people deal with and so in terms of managing and combating stress and anxiety what are the kind of the main maybe techniques that you would potentially use with some clients and i know each each client's going to be completely different um, and maybe some kind of actionable uh, actionable steps that people can can utilize going forward so i think the first thing around stress versus anxiety anxiety is generally worrying about something in the future so worrying about something like future focused where stress is very present um okay. obviously anxiety can be present as well but the difference between the kind of managing both of those um, to me is, is a little bit different. Um, if it's anxiety, um, I would say, I would be firstly asking the questions of where is it coming from? So if you think about like food anxiety, as an example, I would be thinking about, you know, what are the messages that have made us believe that this type of food is bad? If it's worried about body image, again, I'd be thinking about what messages have these people got that they are worried about weight gain. And then I'd be challenging those messages. So are they correct? Is that do I have evidence for those thoughts and beliefs? And if not, I challenge that. Sorry to interrupt you. In terms of these messages and what what exact kind of what, what do you mean by that in terms of like the kind of the what is it supposed to look like and what is weight loss supposed to be? Is that what you mean? Okay, I'll give you an example that comes up in clinic an awful lot. Let's say someone is really worried or anxious about weight gain. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'll use that as as the example to start. If someone's anxious about gaining weight, and their worry is that people will judge me, or um, you know, I'm not valuable, or I don't have as much value if I'm a bigger weight, or you know, I won't get in a relationship if I gain weight. I would be thinking, okay, where has that message come from? And often it's through our experiences, right? Nobody grows up or nobody is born hating themselves. So we learn these messages along the way. I'd be thinking, okay, well, you know, were you ever kind of sent that message? Did you have a bad experience where someone bullied you or judged you? Did you maybe not fit in with your social group and they were all, you know, really lean and like talking about body image and, you know, admiring certain body types and you felt left out or you felt not part of the group. And then I'd be asking, can you challenge that? So can you challenge the idea that if you gain two kilos or three kilos, that your partner won't like you anymore? Can you challenge the idea that if you gain weight, that people will laugh at you or you'll be judged? So they would be the core beliefs that I would be challenging in session. And I think sometimes rewriting those old stories that we've heard or that have been pushed on us can be really helpful in alleviating the present anxiety. Mm. Because again, we've, assigned a meaning to that if we didn't care about weight at all well of course it wouldn't bring up anxiety to gain weight because it's not important to us yet our society places a lot of value on that and because our society places a lot of value on that and that can come from family systems it can come from friends you know we hear these messages it comes up a lot in clinic where parents have told children you need to lose weight or you need to be smaller or you know have been brought to weight watchers at a very young age right so there's this, um, I guess, 
there's this value been put on weight and size, which makes someone anxious or fearful of gaining weight. Therefore, in order to reduce some of that fear, I would be thinking, how can we challenge those old stories? So often people come to me and they're looking for the kind of techniques in terms of like that there's something they can say to themselves or something they can do in the moment to reduce that. The way I see it is that if the core belief of gaining weight is awful and, you know, have people have experiences of that, I'd be challenging those beliefs because if they're the thing that's fueling the anxiety, I think they're the things to, to kind of address. And that's where I think psychological support can be really helpful yeah. because that's what we're trained in, right? We're trained in how to kind of understand and pick apart all those different core beliefs and those ways of thinking that are maybe causing these things in the first place. In terms of then the other side of things like stress, if you're stressed at work or you're super busy, again, think of that fight or flight response. When you are in that fight or flight response, your nervous system is quite activated. So what I would think of there is how can we, if you can't control the stressor, for example, just work is busy or, you know, my relationship is bad, whatever that might look like. If you can't really control that, what, what else can you do to bring your nervous system back down? What else can you do to kind of calm yourself or regulate yourself? Yeah. So what I'd be thinking there is, you know, first of all, um, connection, friends and family. Are there people that you can speak to to kind of get things off your chest? Um, exercise is obviously a good one for regulating your emotions, uh, for your um, regulating your nervous system. Sleep is a great one, of course. Um, but I think the one that I mentioned first there is the one that people often forget. Like how stressful is it when lots of things are going on and you have to hold all of it yourself versus when you get to get it all out or let it out or talk to somebody about it. Even though it doesn't change anything, expressing how you feel and expressing what's going on for you is actually really important. And it's something that most people that I work with find really difficult. You know, if something is, whether it's emotional or stressful or anything else, alleviating it is kind of one of the best ways to, again, regulate yourself. And the example we use when it comes to this is crying, right? People often um, have difficulty crying in front of people. But the example, the reason I use that is think about the last time you felt like you wanted to cry, right? You get a lump in your throat, your throat might be shaky, your breath might be kind of shorter, your heart rate might increase, you might feel like sweaty or clammy. Think about what happens when you don't express that or when you don't cry, right? All of those physical symptoms stick around. You still have the lump in your throat. Your breath is still kind of short. You still feel like that. And it, you know, you hold on to it. Whereas if you actually cry and let it go, although it's kind of uncomfortable in the moment, there's a relief from that feeling. And that's a really good example of how when you respond or when you kind of honor your emotions and express them as they maybe should be expressed, how you can actually get relief from that. So what I would say in, in terms of managing stress, but also managing all those emotional things is to honor those feelings and actually say to somebody or talk about it with somebody. So kind of expression, I think, is a big one. 100%. And you know what? I think that from a coaching perspective as well, having someone there like yourself or, or myself that I say, like when, when people would open up to me a lot over coaching on consultations, on um, in coaching, like tell me a lot of stuff that's going on in their life because that's what I, I want them to do. Do you know, I want them to use me as, as that release and that avenue to share that kind of stuff. And once you 
I find for myself anyway, and I know that a lot of clients do have this to work or it's my podcast mic is stacked on top right now, but my journal in the morning, if I am feeling a little bit stressed, what the hell is going on? A little bit anxious about what's going on at the moment. um, I just write it out. And by simply just writing it out for me, I think you might've touched on that one stage there, just seeing it in front of me and then saying, why am I getting stressed about that? Like, or something even in my like diary, if I have a ridiculous day in front of me, just by writing it out and putting it into the hours during the day, it feels like, okay, that's actually nowhere near as bad as what I think, or chatting to my partner, Gigi and stuff like that as well is, is quite nice to just talk, talk and, and relieve that, I think. And I think that a lot of people will definitely be able to, to um, relate to that as well. I think what you're saying there is, is really important because what writing it down gives us and what speaking about it gives us is an ability to formulate what we're thinking and kind of get it outside of our head. And there's this, we know that from all the research we have in this area, that when those feelings are kept in, that they snowball. So if you don't express emotions or you hold them in, and you inhibit them, the internal experience of yeah. what's going on actually snowballs. It gets bigger. So like, we've all the we've all the research in the world to kind of back that up so i think that's a really important piece that when you keep them in it, it does grow yeah the other thing i can't remember the exact phrase i might ask you to uh say it again i think you said to question it or to when you see some stress maybe question what was the phrase that you used again i think you're challenging it challenging it yeah i think that that's a really really important thing and again like that going like I'm so stressed about the situation, writing it down and going, do I really need to be stressed about that? Is that really worth me wasting my time being stressed? And is me being stressed going to potentially have any positive towards that? I think that's also quite quite a nice thing to use is saying, like, is me getting stressed about this actually going to have any positive influence at all? No. So yeah, I, I, think, I think fleshing it out can be really important. So yeah. when you're asking those questions, clients often will ask me the same questions. Like, What's going to happen about this? You know, if this happens, what if this happens? What if this happens? And there's all these what if questions. Yeah. Sometimes I actually like to flesh those out because, you know, oh, well, what if I what if I eat all the carbs and then I, I gain weight? Okay, we'll answer that question. What does happen? Okay, I'm, I might I might gain a kilo. I might gain two kilos. Okay, what's going to happen if that happens? How can you manage that? Can you cope with that? Is that going to change the world? And often like fleshing out these big questions that we come up with, like we're very good at coming up with the questions, but we very rarely flesh out the answers. And I think sometimes fleshing out the answers can help people realize either they can do something about it or they can control something there. um, Or even if they can't, that there can be maybe a plan B or a plan C or, you know, all the other bits. And I think that's really important just to open people's eyes to it. I think that's maybe what therapy can do. It's probably what, you know, your clients get when they're able to kind of vent about what's going on for them, but it's just a way to kind of formulate what's on your mind and also potentially challenge, you know, is it actually stressful or, you know, is this something that's going on internally? And sometimes the stress is really valid. Sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. Sometimes it's entirely appropriate. And again, that's where I come back to it's normal then. You know, it's normal to feel nervous before the interview. It's normal to feel nervous, you know, I don't know, meeting your girlfriend's family for the first time. These are all normal um, stressors. And I think it's okay to feel it and express it without having to try and change it or always fix it. 
Do you ever find that, like, I know uh, using a couple of examples, maybe um, one of the guys that I'm coaching at the moment might be going into a new job at the weekend or has an interview or has to do some public speaking or something. Do you find that kind of visualization of that scenario for clients is quite nice to use because they've almost been there before or they're kind of doing it over in their head and replaying that image so it isn't, I find with those kind of things, it's that abrupt feeling, oh, Jesus, oh, shit, I've never been here before. This is really scary. Whereas if we kind of replayed in our mind before, maybe that might be a... So for anyone who is listening, um, Joe will give some advice here anyway, <laughs> in terms of the, if you're going into a new interview or you have some stressful situation in front of you in a couple of days or weeks, do you advise to do anything in that situation like that? So think about what causes the anxiety in the first place. I'd be thinking about, let, let's use the interview as an example, right? Someone has a big job interview. Yeah. The reason why that is, uh, is perceived as threatening and causes the stress response or the anxiety response is that is this kind of fear of the unknown, right? You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what they're going to be like. You don't know what they're going to ask you. And that is terrifying. We don't do well in uncertainty. Look at the, the COVID pandemic, right? At the start of this, you know, everyone was freaking out because we don't, we didn't know. So uncertainty is really hard for us to, to deal with. If you got all the questions that you were going to be asked in the interview, you'd feel a lot better, right? Because there's an element of certainty. So I think with those things, the thing, what you mentioned there about kind of going through it in your head, again, it's, it's an example of fleshing out those questions. Yeah. What if they ask me this question? What if they ask me this? What if they ask me this? Yeah. How will you respond? So you're talking about kind of visualization. I would often do role plays with clients. You know, they might be struggling in a relationship and they want to go through what they would say or what they would do in this situation. They might, if it is a job interview and they're worried about what if they ask me this question or what if they ask me this? Okay. What if they do? And then role play it. So you're, you're kind of right. One of the ways we address anxiety is through exposure therapy. And that's across the board. That's like with phobias of, you know, um, things like, I don't know, spiders or feathers or anything. Um, exposure therapy is a really good way of managing anxiety. So in this circumstance, it would be a small uh, precursor of exposure to what might happen in the interview. And that can help reduce like, feelings of anxiety. Okay, very, very nice. And another thing I might pull you back to that we, we touched on there was that feeling of in the moment, stress, sympathetic drive, fight or flight response. And you said, we need to try and calm our nervous system, get more parasympathetic shift, that rest and digest side. Are there kind of tactics that you would like, let's say a scenario, for instance, someone's in off, in their office, they've just received a, an email come across their board from their boss going, Joe, we need to chat right now, come into my office. That feeling, freezing cold in the chest, heart rate going through the roof, pupils dilated, sympathetic response. How do we, what would you say in that moment? Because I think that that kind of scenario in work, in that time where we don't have the ability to lie down on the floor, like chill out, that kind of thing and all that kind of thing. What would it be something that maybe you would do in that situation now or, or advise someone to do? So I think there's two things there. If you can address it in the moment, step one is actually noticing that response in yourself so how does it feel for me is it a tightness in my chest is it the heart rate is it the racing thoughts if you can notice it you can say okay i'm responding to this thing that i think is threatening or that's going to be scary how can i calm the nervous system that could be like breathing techniques it can be grounding exercises it can be you know taking space or going for a walk if you can if you can't there's nothing you can control there i would be again embracing it okay, yeah, there's nothing you can do right now. This is so scary. And just acknowledging it. 
by acknowledging it, you're not trying to push it away. You're not trying to fight it. And like I said before, the more we try and fight it, the more we try to stop thinking about something, the more we kind of think about it. It snowballs. The example that was given to me when I first started was like, don't think of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant, right? And you're just thinking of an elephant. So, the, the, the more we the more we stop trying to fight it i think the more helpful it can be so if you can't control the situation or do anything about it i'd be embracing it mm. okay this is really scary i like this email is freaks me out i don't know what's going to happen and that's okay you know that's a normal response to something like that we can't always control how we're going to feel and we can't always bring ourselves back down because it's an appropriate response you know it's like saying try not to be afraid of walking on a cliff edge where you might die you know i think that's an appropriate feeling of worry um similar with this situation it's appropriate to feel like that but acknowledging it and maybe expressing it maybe writing it out maybe talking to someone if you can at the time are all ways of just firstly accepting it for yourself and hopefully to some extent reducing the um the kind of um i guess the, the fear response something I, something i first did when i was actually um public speaking a lot when i kind of before i had ever really done it to a, a large extent was acknowledging to the people i was speaking to so like the crowd or the audience there that i was really nervous and that calmed me down so i used to get up on stage like, hey uh, i was really nervous to come here and blah 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 and just that acknowledgement that hey I'm nervous and sharing it was able was able to kind of bring me down a little bit. It was kind of a, a little bit of a safety net. So I think acknowledging it and expressing it is, is again, just really important, whether you can change it or not. 100% I think a key word there is awareness as well. And I, I've done a lot of the, you know, that I'm sure, I'm, I presume, you know, anyway, the headspace, the kind of stuff that they do and stuff of like that, they all talk about, or uh, I think his name is Andy, the, the guy in it, isn't it, Andy? And um, talks about awareness a lot and being aware of these and noting these thoughts and noting these feelings kind of thing. I think that's a really, and um, was a pivotal moment for me where I started to be able to deal with these things a little bit better and, and manage them a little bit better, I would say, um, that they're always going to be there. But as soon as you can kind of note, like you just said, make yourself aware of it, I think it makes it a lot easier then to, to manage. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I've done a couple of, of those courses on, on Headspace before. And one of the things that comes up a lot is noting it and letting it pass because yeah. we know that emotions exactly. change from, from minute to minute. And one of the key learnings I think from that is like not always having to change it, not always having to fix it because sometimes yeah. it's just really appropriate and there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Being able to sit with it, recognize it and just be aware of it um, yeah. is, is actually a help in itself. That's yeah, that, that point exactly is, is, is what he talks about a lot. It definitely does help to know as well. And just that kind of thought, we've said it a few times saying, no, you said it like it's normal to have these feelings. And I think that is just being, and some of the stuff that you think of, like if you're thinking about football match the weekend or what scored Liverpool match was, those are just thoughts as well. But these kind of thoughts set you off on another path. But then when you said to, to challenge these thoughts and emotions, once you are aware of them, I think that's the, by the sounds of it, that's the way that people should deal with it a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. So in terms of, of kind of um, from a mental health standpoint, I know we kind of yourself and myself would probably be a cross bridge between the physique side and the psychology side in terms of kind of protecting our own mental health. And maybe that might, word might be a little bit uh, after even just this discussion today, protecting our mental health might not be a good, a good word to use, but 
are there any kind of um, scenarios that we should maybe try and try and avoid or be aware of and um, that will kind of help protect our own mental health regarding kind of binge binge eating drinking comparisons to others all these kind of things i think when I, when you mentioned some of those i guess unhelpful coping strategies like binging or even like constantly comparing or any of those kind of yeah. unhelpful coping strategies the way i see it is that the behavior there is an expression of the problem. So okay. people often say with disordered eating and things like that, that the problem isn't food, right? The problem, like food is just the expression of the problem. So if someone feels like really down or really anxious and they respond with food, the problem is the anxiety, the kind of challenge in managing difficult emotions and the expression is food. Some people's expression is drinking. Some people's expression is like mindlessly scrolling on Instagram for hours to avoid those feelings, right? Yeah. So the way I look at it with those things is if you see yourself using some of those unhelpful coping, excuse me, unhelpful coping strategies to recognize that they are the expression of the problem rather than the problem themselves. Um, and then in terms of protecting your mental health, I think it depends what the, the coping strategy is, but anything that is kind of, like if you're responding to internal distress, whether that be body image related or anything else, I think that's the, I, I would always say to, to address the root of the cause or address the root cause rather than the symptoms. Yeah. By, you know, if you try and address um, binge eating strictly with a meal plan, you're not addressing the underlying stuff, right? And structured eating can be really helpful for people with binge eating, but, the underlying thing that's fueling it is the emotional side of things. The things that I look at the most, I guess, are when it comes to protecting your mental health, you've, we've all heard it before, sleep, nutrition, exercise, and the one that people often forget is, is connection. So in terms of the basics of looking after yourself, those things, in terms of, again, it, it depends. So it, it's so such a varied area, um, but there are all these unhelpful coping strategies like comparison to others, constantly comparing yourself um, exposing yourself, to, I guess, filling your feed with the wrong types of things when it comes to that stuff. Exactly. Um, surrounding yourself with the wrong kind of messages, whether that be the people you hang around with, whether that's your family, whether that's yourself. Um, like there are lots of different things that maybe we should kind of um, keep to a minimum, alcohol and drugs being one of them that's kind of normalized again, but it's just not helpful for our, our mental health. But in terms of the basics, those kind of main four are, are huge. Um, everything that comes after that would be, I guess, a, a lot smaller percentage in terms of contributing to our mental health. And in terms of that one, I see a lot of with clients, I do it myself all the time as well, unfortunately, and I have to pull myself back from time to time, that comp kind of comparison to others. I think in the, the link that we're, we're trying to create here, for, especially for this podcast, is around physique, body composition, that kind of thing, fat loss, all that kind of stuff. I've had a lot of clients in the past talk to me about this kind of stuff, like they're doing this, they're doing that, this physique, this was that, this business, this person, that whatever. It's such a, a horrible thing right now that I think that everyone is is kind of almost sucked into with the whole social media Instagram world. Are there tips and strategies that you feel are, are good other than stuff like, first and foremost, deleting your Instagram or, or social media or blocking certain people? I think you touched on um, like client cl close circles and, and having looked through your following list. Have you had people that have come to you with that? Um, with that same sensation of comparison to others, physique, business, whatever it is, and what advice would you have given them in the past? 
So the way I look at it when it comes to any behavior, is this behavior serving you? Is this helpful or harmful? For some people, they weigh themselves every morning. They have no emotional connection to it and you know it doesn't cause them any distress. For somebody else, they get really upset if they go up half a kilo or a kilo. They you know tie it, put a lot of value on that. And I'd be asking, does this behavior serve you? Is this helpful or harmful? So for somebody where it's helpful, you know, nothing changes if they fluctuate. For someone when it's harmful, they might beat themselves up over it. They might further restrict and end up like under eating. They might feel so bad that they turn to food or that they give up. For those people, I'd be like, that's harmful. If you're someone who scrolls forever on Instagram or whatever platform and you're constantly comparing yourself and it's impacting you. So I'm really annoyed I don't look like this or you know, this is really frustrating that I can't get the same results or whatever it might look like for people. I'd be asking, is if is it working for you? Is that actually helpful to think all, all of that, or is it harmful? If it's harmful, well, you know, again, delete it, you know, change, change something there. Yeah. But the key question is for people to actually come to terms with the fact that some of these things are harmful for them, because I, I think people, I guess it's so normalized, right? What do you follow you know, that fitness influencer? And, you know, it's kind of standard. Everyone does. And you talk about it. It's a topic of conversation. But I, I'd be questioning, is this helpful for me? We know from the research in this area that your kind of norms of what your body should look like is shaped by what you've kind of experienced. Actually, I should probably talk about this really interesting study that they did in Fiji in the 90s. They got a region of Fiji where they didn't have TV. And they um, researched these young women, right? And at the beginning of the study, there were no disordered eating patterns. There were no kind of body image issues, just like, you know, they, they weren't struggling with anything. Yeah. And, and they got exposed to Western TV for the first time in 1995. So TV was brought into this community and they were like, I don't know what they were watching, but it was like Westernized TV where this, I guess in the nineties, the, the Kate Moss figure was like what to, what everyone wanted to achieve, right? That like stick thin figure. Yeah. And over the course of three years, I think it was something along the lines of 50% of the group that they were researching had developed like disordered eating, uh, body image concerns, and even going as far as like getting sick to try and manipulate their, their body image and things like that. So that was kind of a, a really interesting study back in the day of, you know, and nobody on TV was saying, you need to look like me. Nobody on TV was saying, you should have this body. It was implicit. It was underlying. So when they surrender, when they exposed herself, themselves to a different norm, they started believing, oh, this is what normal looks like. And I think that's what's happening with social media is that we're so exposed to these like aesthetic figures and, and all of that, that we begin to think that that's normal and everyone should try and achieve that. And I think that can be harmful. So I'd be asking again, the question, is it harmful or helpful to me to be exposed to all of that? Yeah. Um, and I think for, for a lot of people who struggle with this side of things, um, it, I don't think it is. That's a, a phenomenal study and it pretty much puts that completely in perspective and um, what we were talking about there. And in terms of, of other links, I know we, we touched on one, obviously, comparison there. Do you see much in your field in terms of the links between kind of health, fitness, body composition, physique realm and mental health? And and from that, can can you say that what people need to be kind of aware and find themselves um, kind of drifting towards something where they, that's probably not a positive or that could be more more harmful, as we just talked about there? 
Yeah, um, it's probably quite scary for a lot of your audience if, if they hear the research on this, but in terms of body composition, um, competitors especially, um, there's quite a poor record of mental health. Um, and that is generally body image concerns. And I think the nature of the kind of competing in the sport reinforces that, right? So body checking is something that comes up quite a bit. The nature of competing is trying to, you know, pinpoint the bits of yourself that, you know, you need more definition or, you know, need to change. But that mentality in the longer term can be damaging. And we know that people who compete often engage in the disordered eating patterns that health professionals like myself would be worried about in the long term again like people do it to try and you know get right for the show or whatever that might look like but i'd be concerned about the damage in the long term because we know that like you know scarcity of calories can impact the brain if your brain is detecting that calories are scarce or that food is scarce it's a very important survival mechanism that your brain responds by trying to eat as much as possible and if someone's going through that cycle quite a lot, you know, that can impact their, their, um, I guess their brain, because what we know from people who diet and who go through extreme diets, chronic diets, et cetera, is that they start learning to ignore their body's natural signals. So hunger and fullness signals start to be ignored, right? It's part of the process. If you're losing weight, that at some point you're going to be hungry. If you start to ignore those signals that can disrupt how you your brain perceives them going forward so you know it can be really challenging to i get i guess get back to eating intuitively or eating in line with what your body actually needs after doing something extreme like that so the one thing i'd be concerned about there is like body image stuff obviously that comes with that and the second would be the actual eating patterns and the eating behaviors hmm. yeah i think I, de I definitely probably not not knowing but more so now that i'm in the position I am now, probably looking back at years of, of I and I've said this a million one times on the podcast. I used to be 103 kilos, dieted all the way down. At one stage, I think I was 68, 69 kilos. It's an incredible amount of, of weight loss done over a good few years. But I think that the phrase that I used before was just that be, you, you feeling shit becomes the new norm, and you're just you're just in like you said, you completely go out of tune with your body you having low energy, shit all food, hours of cardio, like you, that just becomes normal for you. And then when you kind of come out of it and now being in a position and probably, probably more so um, for myself, maybe not, I wouldn't say body dysmorphia, but just the scared of going back to where I was before, not allowing myself add, add, add body fat and the kind of the psychological barriers to getting into some sort of gaining phase. And I've done a podcast on this topic as well. I think is very important um, for people to note that, that whole shift from diet, 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 diet. And then maybe if you want to go into a growing phase or want to start to get into a productive place and get away from dieting, because we don't, we know that isn't good to be in for a long period of time. We see that scale move up and it's a 0.5 kilo increase. And immediately our mind goes, that's body fat right there. I can feel it. And it's, it's of course not, not that immediate. So, and then it's like, okay, I need to go back into diet. I think thinking about what that is conditioning you to believe is like, you know, everyone pats you on the back for losing weight and you're worried about gaining weight or that's the wrong thing to do. Now, again, that's not explicit a lot of the time, but it is implicit and we learn implicitly, you know, we learn from just those responses. So if it's always a good thing to lose weight and always a bad thing to gain weight for a long period of time. And at the end of it, you know, there's a show or a competition where, everyone you know applauds that you know your physique or your body image for being 
small or lean or whatever that might look like, it can be very difficult to, I guess, untie the value. Yeah, to, to yeah. try and detach your value from lower weight. Uh, that's a huge, huge challenge for a lot of the clients that I work with because always having that in mind means always wanting to restrict and restriction leads to binging. So again, it's a psychological reason that leads to a very physical reason for binging. Mm-hmm. And just looking at flick through Instagram right now in 10 seconds and we see this guy is peeled year long round. This girl is shredded year long round. It's just this like, it's just crazy when you, when you flick through and you go like, that's what you almost plays the thing in the back of your mind and say, that's what I need to be looking like year long round where we know how unhealthy it is to be that level of body fat year long round. I think the most important thing for me and breaking that mold. And I don't think I've ever done a, a gaining phase or, or a time away from dieting that lasted lot longer than maybe two, maybe two months or something like that, something crazy. And then it was back into dieting because I needed to tidy up. The best thing that I ever, ever happened to me was just getting a coach, getting someone to take that out of my hands, being really structured and systemized and moving me through that process. And I'm probably eight, eight months into it now at the moment. And that's probably the longest time I've been away from dieting and I've never been happier. So for anyone that is listening, first and foremost to, if, if you're in that position, I think I can't remember exactly what number of the podcast is, but I do have a podcast in that, but it's very natural to feel like that, but just get someone to help you through that process, because um, I think it's very, very important from a coach co- coaching perspective to get through there. Yeah, definitely. I yeah. So before we finish up, Joe, do you have anything else that you'd like to add or tell the listeners anything that we've kind of touched on that you'd like to touch on as well? Um, no, just to reiterate kind of what you, you said there, I think it's really important to get support if it's needed. Um, if it is the psychological side of things, like, there is no shame in coming to someone like me because yeah. they're the people who are appropriately trained in this area. You know, if the body image, whether it's the body image concerns or it's the emotional side of things or all of those psychological barriers, a mental health professional is really well placed to support someone with that stuff. And I think if that's the stuff that's getting in the way of you being who you want to be, like absolutely like get in, get in touch with somebody. Like I, I really love working with people who maybe don't meet the criteria sometimes who don't meet the criteria for a diagnosis because, you know, the earlier you help someone, the better, you know, the easier it is for them. Whereas if someone's kind of really deeply entrenched in that, it can be, it can be really difficult. So I think, yeah, reach out for support if, if necessary. 100%. Well, listen, Joe, I won't keep you any longer. Thank you so much for taking the time to jump on today. As always, really, really insightful chat and really glad to hear um, you bridging, going out and bridging this gap, really, which, which needs to be bridged for sure. For listeners, where can they find you and, and where can they kind of learn a little bit more about you and your courses and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so my Instagram is at headfirstzero. Um, that's generally where I post most of my content. I also have the head first podcast. If you want kind of more in-depth stuff related to psychology and behavior change and all of that. And if you're a health professional or if you're a personal trainer, dietitian, nutritionist, whatever, um, I run a course probably three or four times a year on the psychology of behavior change. And the next one is in September. So if anyone wants to sign up and um, you can shoot me an email, which is joe at headfirst.ie. Yeah, guys, I don't think you can go wrong with, with uh, working with or under Joe, I think would be a fantastic opportunity for anyone. So with that said, Joe, again, thank you so much for taking the time to jump on. Really, really appreciate it. It's been fantastic. And uh, hopefully we might get you on at another stage down the line. No problem. Thanks for having me, Josh. Thank you.